Well, we are once again diving into one of my favorite things, and that is horror novels. I love them, I read them a bunch, probably too much, but that's okay. Joining me now is Gwendolyn Nix. She is the author of I Have Asked to Be Where No Storms Come, being released on July 29th through our good friends at Crystal Lake Publishing. Gwendolyn, thank you for being here, and thank you for being on the show. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. It's going to be a blast. Oh, definitely is, definitely is. Now, this is a this is really a complicated story, which I like. Uh, differently uh, multifaceted, but could you walk us through just what this book is all about? Yeah, so, um, you know, if you pick it up and you look at the cover, you're going to learn that this book in a few lines is about a witch, male witch named Domino. He's stuck in hell. He's trying to stay sane and survive um, uh, while there are a bunch of demonic bounty hunters on his tail. Um, And as he rushes away from them and tries to escape, he soon discovers that they were sent um, after him by his brother, who actually wields this insurmountable power um, because he made an ill-fated deal with um, this goddess of thunder and lightning. So that's kind of like the book in a nutshell, like if I was going to, you know, corner you and be like, this is what my book is about. Um, But personally, it's kind of like a book about my home. Like I really wanted to write, um, I mean, my home doesn't have like demonic bounty hunters or anything like that, but it is like what I wanted to to be um, writing about the place I was from, um, a lot of the inspiration I had when I was growing up, and um, a lot of the inspiration that I have now that I've moved back to my hometown. Okay, then I have to ask, where was your hometown? Because Jesus... <laughs> right. I'm from Montana and kind of like the the, the Northwest. Um, so yeah, well, it has a big mountain ranges, and at the same time, it's also like on the flat plains. So you get kind of a dichotomy of you know really warm, hot, you know that those nice those nice summers where there's like the thunderstorms come over the the plains and all the lightning strikes, and then also at the same time, kind of a Pacific Northwest vibe with the green, lush mountains. Ah, okay, all right. Now, th- now I am about uh, two chapters into the book, and folks, you definitely want to check this one out. It's a really really cool story, but it opens in hell and a very detailed hell it's a very there's a lot of like structure here so i know that like world building is a big part of a book like this how long did it take you to kind of devise this version of hell and why did you go this route yeah, so it, so it kind of emerged throughout the writing of the book. Like I knew that I wanted to take place in some this underworld, and that's kind of a theme that I have throughout my work. Um, I don't know why. It's just something that always keeps emerging. It's like, where am I going to set this? Oh, obviously it's going to be in hell, duh. Um, <laughs> so, but I really, um, at the beginning, I really wanted it to be very, uh, people didn't know what they were. I wanted them to have that sense of uncertainty. Like, is this in the past? Is it the future? And I wanted readers to be in there thinking, oh, this is a mismatch of the future, the past, and now. Like every version of everybody could be in this in this area. And to me, that's part a little bit about what a hellish punishment would be like is kind of being lost and not understanding like the technology you might encounter because it's in the far future. Or maybe the technology that really helped you in the past, you've no idea how to use it, but somehow you have to use it to get out of some terrible situation. Um, so that was kind of my my main goal when I first started writing it. And then as um, I kind of got into the depths of the book, it started to really evolve um, that it ends up up spoiler being um a land kind of like our own but that it's it belongs to the demons and they're kind of like why are these human souls in here get them out of here this is our home get rid of them (laughs) (laughs) um but i wanted to have that kind of that strange you know eeriness creepiness but at the same time still have that that dread and that but also be recognizable to readers so we're the unwanted guests basically of hell (laughs) yeah a little bit yep (laughs) yep (laughs) I never thought of that way. That's, that's that's really cool. So so how do you kind of structure heaven, hell, and the earth? You know, how is all this kind of laid out? 
Yeah, so I didn't really uh, touch on heaven in any way. The the idea is that hell is kind of like a different dimension that has been accessed through this witchery power. Essentially, these um, witches are trying to save their earth. They're kind of like environmental extremists. They use their magic and it kind of goes awry and they end up opening this huge chasm um, at, into hell, which um, kind of links the two worlds together. And then... Um, through magic, like our, the human souls are ended up being like shuffled down there. Whether they're supposed to go there is something the book leaves, un, you know, uncertain. Um, and whether there's a heaven is also the same way. But all we know is that somehow these souls are being sucked in there, kind of like a like dust into a vacuum cleaner, being pulled into this new world. They don't know why. They don't know if they really belong there, but um, or if it's like a faded place to be. But it's where they end up going in an afterlife. I'm kind of curious about your own viewpoints of like heaven, hell, and earth. Does it kind of like line up with, with, with how like you think of these things? So I'm not a very, I'm not a religious person. I, I mean, I don't, haven't, was it ever got, went to church or anything like that. So, but I've always been fascinated, I think, by the idea of a punishment place or hell or however you may phrase it. I'm going to go with that range because that's, you know, where I'm from. Um, but I, uh, I, I think what fascinates me about it is that everybody has their own versions of what it could be. And if those were real, how would they clash and come together and how would they shape the world that you're in? Like if you're thrust into a different place that's, you know, dictated by someone you don't believe in, a religion you don't believe in, and yet you're suddenly having to, you know, d- d- obey their, their laws, like how does that work for you? And can your own I- imagination and your own like beliefs influence theirs in any way? So I think it's kind of like an exchange of beliefs and culture um, that really fascinates me that I like to put into my books and explore like, okay, if hell was actually, you know, like the wild west that you stumble upon, like how would that work? And how, who are the people that lived there before you? And what what does this match mean? Are you using their their rituals for your own purposes and how is that you know i guess culturally appropriating hellish (laughs) demonic abilities (laughs) so domino is a half witch which in hell is the worst thing to be you're basically hunted how does domino become a half witch and what does that kind of mean for him yeah so for him um the main character part of their the witchery that they they belong to is kind of like a curse um it's part of their lineage um, their mother was, was a witch, but their father was not. So it's kind of like, uh, it's brought through the blood bloodline. Um, but the, how it becomes initiated is that you do something like completely terrible. So this, this witchery is a bad thing. Like it's a curse that you have to do something absolutely terrible for that magic to, to be resurrected inside of you and that you can access it. And, and so these two witches, um, Domino's the main character and his brothers, Wakasa, he, they both fight it. They don't want to do this, whatever evil thing that, that could potentially ignite their, their magic, but any, but through life and just the circumstances they're under, they end up having to do it anyway. They end up accidentally coming into this power. Um, so one of the things I really wanted to play with is um, I was really influenced by a lot of you know, the ideas and Native American lore that's surrounding me from Montana. Um, And so I didn't want to, you know, take that and actually put that in my book. But I wanted to, like, explore how those influences had influenced me and, you know, the the work I've been creating and the places I lived. And so um, in that way, um, since I myself kind of I'm a white person and I don't know all of that lore. I felt a little bit like I was outside of it and I wanted to put that feeling into my characters. So I wanted them to feel a little bit outside and not understand some of the the influences that they, that they um, see in their world. And so this was something that was really big with them. So they have this magic. They don't know where it came from, but they know that they, they 
are able to access it. Um, and then part of it is understanding what it means to them through their lineage ability. Is it fate versus free will? Like, do they have to do this evil thing to become a witch? Like, do is it is it something they can choose or have they just been faded into it? Um, and then they slowly learn that this other sect of witches who are environmentally conscious and trying to save the world are actually influencing um, the plot as a whole. How does Domino's and his brother's magic work exactly? It's kind of like a... Um, they end up kind of like getting familiars in a way. So one of them has like these bone familiars um, that they kind of like scuttles around and does cool things. Then he ends up kind of like him being like a bone massive warrior. I guess it's kind of like bloodborne, like those little white creatures that are like, yeah. <laughs> um, and then Wakasa on, on the other hand has more like this transformative magic. So they kind of have special sex like um, within their, their magical abilities, but they don't really know what it is. So he can kind of like see, um, essentially the trauma of the earth when um, these witches like made this big chasm and he can use the, these threads that are surrounding the earth to like, you know, play with it and transform into a big monster. And he's able to go between um, the realms essentially. So um, it's all different. It kind of it varies. And again, I, I wanted that sense of like uncertainty, like how did this even come here? Like you have it, but you don't know where it came from. Like, is this something um, that you should know, or is it something that should be like buried and never seen again? I would like to have a giant spider familiar, please. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just because I can't think of anything more nightmarish than a skeletal spider. <laughs> right. Just like scuttling out of the earth. Like, Dah! <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. That that's that's the way to go for me. Now, the the magic that these two brothers possess, I know in some cases it can be like a deus ex machina. Just, you know magically just like saves the day is that is that the case here or is it more of just a tool that they use yeah it's definitely more like a tool they use because their magic ends up kind of getting them into, their, into the hot water that you know that gets them in trouble so um our our wakasa essentially he wants to save his brother from hell and he'll do anything to do it but um his magic is so powerful that a lot of other evil entities want to use it and so he ends up like gifting it out as as much as he can until he's stretched so thin and has so many deals made that he's he can't even he can't even survive it. Well, I, I'm not going to spoil it, but if they, he like has a, a trouble surviving at the end, essentially. Um, and that's kind of the office of Verdomino is he has these little creatures that are you know bone familiars essentially, but they end up eating away at him, like at his own bone structure. And so he has to somehow like find calcification to keep his bone structure alive without falling falling apart. Um, so. All of these, this magic, as I said, is, is is a curse. It's not supposed to be something that can save the day at the end. And and it actually doesn't. We actually have some other side characters that come in and, and rally and help our brothers make it through at the end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is his brother the villain of the story? It, it, yes. I would say that our main characters are definitely like antiheroes. Um, again, they, they start out wanting to be good people and good men, and they try their hardest. But at the same time, with that fate versus free will, they end up coming into circumstances that make them have to do, choose some difficult, some diff, make some difficult choices, essentially, and um, which kind of spirals them deeper and deeper into um, darker decisions until at the end, it's like, well, who, who else is left and who else can you save? And should you do anything you can to save your brother or should you just kind of go along with that grieving process? if he's lost forever in the depths of hell, being tortured forever. <laughs> I definitely got that vibe from Domino, the whole anti-hero thing, because especially, I mean, just as early as I am into the story, you can tell he is haunted by his choices, that he's hurt people, he's, left, he's like left people to die. What drives Domino? What would you say is kind of the thing that is moving him forward? 
Yeah. So in the at the beginning of the novel, he is very rudderless. I think his drive is simply to survive and not become like the shells of people that he sees in this terrible underworld. He wants to keep some semblance of, you know, his mentality and who he is alive. Um, as that kind of devolves, he ends up meeting um, another witch who ends up kind of, you know, tempting him in the opposite way. Like just live, live, live like the fools. You're in hell. What, what does it matter? Just, just do whatever you want to do. And for him, he quickly spirals into this like dark place of, um, you know, that leads into more violence and more um, bad choices um, until finally he is ended up, he, he becomes pulled out of hell by um, his brother, Wakasa. And then at that point, he kind of realizes for him, I think he takes on a lot of guilt for everything that has happened to him. And so he want, he doesn't want his brother to save him and his brother did anyway. And he's like, well, this isn't what I wanted, but now you're in deep trouble with all these deals you've made. Let's, you know, they have to work together to figure things out. So I think Domino kind of regains his, um, you know, uh, his ability to control his life or know what he wants by the end of the book. Um, and he kind of makes a final decision at that end of where he wants to go and where he wants to end up. That's pretty crucial. Mm-hmm. Now, we've talked about, you know, hell, magic and everything in between. I imagine world building this was a lot of fun. How long were you on that? And did did you have to do it before you could actually write the book itself? Oh, gosh, I am probably the worst person at that. I am a pantser, 100%. Like, I know people plan their books out to a T. But me, I I just can't do it. I lose that excitement and that magic for myself when I'm writing. If I'm like, oh, now I have to write scene one, you know, paragraph A, here we go. So um, I actually started writing this book while I was in the middle of writing another book. It was like a procrastination book for me, (laughs) just super random. Um, But um, I, I didn't really, I had an idea of where I wanted to go. And so my first draft was so messy. There was, there were so many strange things in it. There were things that didn't make sense. So on the second pass, it was a lot of like, hacking and slashing. And then and it was also like trying to figure out what the what the core of this book was, like, where did it come from? So um, it definitely took a long time. I think this whole total process was like five plus years for me. Um, just because of that panting. That's, that's my style. That's how I work. And I can't I've tried to do the, the formatting way and it just doesn't work for me. So um, it, it was definitely probably in the second draft that I was like, okay, this is what the world mechanics are like, or my characters are in a strange plot point area, and I don't know what to do with them. And that's because this world, this piece of the world hasn't been built out well enough. And then you kind of like find the, essentially the sinkholes and navigate around them. So yeah, I just go in like full bore, like, <laughs> like gunning, you know, going hundred miles an hour. And then I was like, we'll figure out what, <laughs> what I've left behind and when I look back behind my shoulder (laughs) i think that can be the more fun way to write because i definitely see the advantage of planning things out about saying okay you know you know chapter one is this two is this and so forth but at the same time i think there's some fun aspects of just saying you know what screw it we're just gonna go and see where it takes us uh you mentioned the hacking and slashing as you were going through this thing what was left out Oh man, I did actually have uh, things that were left out. Like I did plan to kind of make it more into a um, exploration of what, you know, heaven might look like. And that, that plot just got completely taken out because it didn't make sense. And I didn't really know where I was going with it. So I had a couple of characters that they kind of meandered and ended up being taken out and put into other situations. So um, one of our female characters was supposed to be like a heavenly figure. And I ended up making her something completely different, which worked out far better. Like as soon as she settled into her role, I was like, oh, there you are. That's who you were meant to be. You were our guiding light the whole time. And we just didn't know it. Um, 
so that ended up getting taken out a lot. Um, that was abandoned, I guess, on the on the cutting room floor. Um, there was a couple of other like bigger. I really wanted to explain the magic and really get into you know make a magic system. But at the same time, like as I was getting into like the themes of it, I was like that just doesn't isn't where this book is going. And I had to kind of put my own experiences into it. And I really wanted to explore like what it. It was kind of a personal book in some ways. And so to you know cut make the the magic system specific kind of lost that sense of um i guess uncanniness and like for the characters not really knowing what it meant but knowing that things were kind of happening to them and having to deal with it at the same time um so yeah there's a lot that got cut but at the same time that's just that's the process and i agree with you it's fun to just for me like blaze in 100 miles an hour and see what happens because i think i find turns i never expected i was going to take you mentioned that this was somewhat personal for you how so um, I think it was like dealing, looking at those influences. Um, I was, so essentially I'm kind of like a magpie creator, like throughout my whole life, I'll find snippets of song lyrics or stories or conversations. And I just like bring them in and bring my shinies in and then I pack them away. And then maybe 10 years later, I'll go back and go, oh man, I should really write a story about this. And then I go back and I find all these shinies and I dust them all off and I find them all and I, it's like a mountain, right? But at the same time, like these shinies are all from different places. Like they could be from, like I said before, like a Native American lore. It could be from, you know, my trip that I went over to Scotland and somehow I want to combine them all. But at the same time, it's like, well, should is that appropriate in some ways? Like, is it really making the story um, how you how you want it to be? And so I really had to go through and kind of figure out how to navigate you know, making sure I wasn't doing any cultural appropriation and making sure that I was kind of telling my story and not somebody else's. Like if I wanted to use a magic system, I wanted to make it, I guess, my magic system, not taken from someplace else and pl and plopped into this and then transformed into a way that fit my needs. I wanted to make it something a little bit more that came from my imagination. I want to ask a bit about cultural appropriation because this yeah. is something that I've seen authors talk a lot about in recent years. As a, actually a writer I spoke to recently, they had a diversity inclusion specialist as part of the crew. How would you say things have changed for writers when it comes to dealing with these kinds of topics? Yeah, I actually think it's really important because I think um, I think one of the things that a lot of people don't see now is they don't go back and look at old media and see how it might be offensive nowadays. Like if you go and watch, I think, television shows like from the 90s or like even All in the Family, if you go back and watch it and see the themes, like you'll probably go, oh, oh, that kind of hurts you in some ways. And I think us recognizing that is it was really, really important, um, especially when we're making our own media today. And it's also like, I think one of the things that about um, cultural appropriation really liked was from this author named Rihanna Held and she wrote the Tarnish series. Um it's that came out from Tor. It's about werewolves. Um but she I went to a, a talk she gave and one thing that she said that was so poignant I thought was that cultural appropriation is about history and power. So where is the power in your book and how is that power like giving more power to the people who have hurt other people in the past? Or is it, you know, helping that help helping show that in a in a different type of light? Like, how are you using that power for your own gains? And so I kind of I really liked that, and I felt it kind of synced up a lot of things thoughts that I had, um, in how to make my book my book. And um, I think if people can recognize that, we can come, kind of come up with brand new ideas that aren't just like seated in old old ideas and old plots. Like we can really like start to break through the mold and find new different ways to tell stories and also make it more personal for the author. You're not just like taking an Aztec, you know, mythology and making it for your own purposes. You are making your own story for you. So um, I, hope, I don't know if I answered your question. I went off on a tangent a bit there, but <laughs> I'm so sorry. 
sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's cool. It's cool. I I think that's a very good point to raise, and I think that that kind of thing has a potential to challenge writers in a good way because, like you said, there are certain things that people just keep going back to, like, oh, the Mayan curse or the Aztec curse or the so-and-so curse. That's very – it's a bit of a trope, actually, I think. How do you know, though, how can you ensure that your, that your work isn't culturally appropriate? Yeah. Um, and, and that is kind of like a, a sticky situation. I think there's a lot of really great resources out there. Um, I think uh, that I have worked with a sensitivity reader in the past, and that was a really great experience. Um, they kind of pointed out some things in my writing that I didn't notice before or some things that I might have not have never, ever noticed ever. Um, so that I think that's that's really cool. Um, and, and like I said, okay, so yeah, there's a lot of research you have to do, like just for your own, just to know where your, your work is coming from, like understanding where your inspiration is coming from. I think that no one is ever going to be perfect. Like we're always going to be learning. Um, you know, someone could pick up my work and be like, hey, you know, this, this might not be, you know, correct at the time, or maybe in 20 years, someone will be like, oh, this, this could have been something you could have done better. But at the time I was doing the best I could. Um, I think as long as you kind of find, again, look at that history and power idea. Like, where is that idea coming from? Where is the shift in power and where is it going? And I think those kind of like guidelines kind of can help you figure out where to go. If you're sitting there and saying, well, I'm going to take this, again, this Aztec curse and it's going to be the worst curse, but then we're going to have some explorers come in and save the day. Where's the power? Where's the history? Like, and you can clearly see it. Um, so yeah, I think, I think asking those hard questions and sometimes it's hard because you want writing to be easy. You kind of look at the end game and say, wow, I'm going to be famous. I'm gonna make a million dollars off this story. But <laughs> at the same time, like it's also an art, right? Like you have to kind of think a little bit more about your inspiration and your influences. And I think that's just going to make a whole new slew of really good writers out there. I think we're all climbing to the top of the mountain. I think that anything that challenges folks to think in different ways can be a very good thing. And to, to that leads to my next question, was there any tropes or elements that you wanted to avoid with this book? Ooh, that I wanted to avoid. Um, okay, yes. So I do have a, um, I mentioned before, a female character. Um, and I really didn't want the female character and the male protagonist to fall in love. I didn't want this to be a love story. I, you know, and she's there and she obviously like gives a lot of her time and energy to one of the characters, um, but she has a reason to do so. And that reason is very personal to her. Like I wanted her to have her own agency. And so I didn't want this to become like, you know, a female saving the day because, you know, the, these male characters have gotten into, a, a, you know, deep trouble or whatever, like, and that she ends up doing it out of love for them. Um, I wanted it to be about that she is also, doing it for her own reasons, her own magic and trying to discover her own self. So that was something I really did try to avoid. I also really wanted to avoid the idea of hell being a um, place of complete torture. I wanted it to be more of a psychological place. So, you know, you could be Domino ends up driving into the desert and he takes like a, a, a Shelby Cobra. That's a car he ends up finding that he, it doesn't have anything to do with him, but he, it's probably from somebody else's nightmares and he takes it and he drives off into it. But I didn't want this to be like, you see people strung up and being tortured by demons. You see, I wanted to kind of avoid that and make it more of a personal journey um, that you have to constantly be facing the bad things that you've done in your life or that you are mentally thinking about them all the time and how that, that itself is its own type of um, punishment besides like a physical one that one might see in normal Christianity. Domino seems to me to be a very vulnerable character. This is a guy, as I mentioned before, haunted by his past. He meets his mom in the first couple chapters and that just breaks him practically. Is that the case though? Um, I would say that 
it, since the story is in his deep in his POV, um, uh, that that is probably true. He has a lot of issues that he keeps inside, um, a lot of um, emotions that he doesn't let come out easily. I think in my mind, he's a very stoic, um, hardened character on the outside, but the inside, he's just roiling with with guilt and things that he should have done. So I think it was kind of a choice to make that. Um, I think if it was from a different point of view, um, that might not have been the case. You might not see that. Um, and as maybe you get further in, as we do switch point of view, as you kind of see him as more of a stoic character. But yeah, I wanted him to be somebody that you can instantly connect to um, that had a lot of problems because I want you to sit and go, oh, what are they? Like, let me, let, like, I want the reader to go, what are they? And keep turning the page. All right. Let's talk titles, because the title of this book really stuck out to me, because normally titles are a bit on the short side. This one is lengthy, which is fine. I totally like it. And then reading the book itself, I saw that this was an excerpt from the poem Heaven Haven by Gerard Manley Hopkins. How did this line stick out to you, and what made you want to say, okay, this is my title? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the title didn't come to me until I, you know, finished the book, essentially. Um, I had, which is so funny, I never title my books until the end, because I, I'm a terrible title, let's just be real. Um, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and um, so I think I had read this poem a long, long time ago. And for me, poetry is something that, you know, either hits me like a wave, or it's something I just don't, I don't care about. Like, it's it's very hot or cold, like I have a strong emotion stored, or I just don't care. And for this one, I I really liked it, but I couldn't figure out why. Like, I think the whole point of it is about a woman um, taking the mantle to become a nun. But for me, it said it spoke volumes to something different. And I think it was about the idea of what heaven is versus what a haven is. Um, you know, sometimes people find that, you know, heaven is supposed to be the place where you find safety and comfort and acceptance. And to me, it was always like, well, maybe your haven is actually what that is. That's a haven can be a person. It can be a different place. Like it could be that. Um, spot underneath the tree by the creek that your grandpa used to take you to all the time instead of you know like some godly place and as I was going through this like essentially one of our characters ends up making an ill-fated deal with a goddess of lightning and thunder and so there's this idea of storms and and um, lightning and thunder and rain and at the same time we're in this hellish landscape that is nothing but you know dust and hellfire so um I think that it's so what so finally when I kind of finished up that ending like the 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 ending of the book really was kind of like oh there's something about this like that I remember and I was kind of paging through back poetry books and trying to remember what that niggling feeling was and when I stumbled upon it I was like oh there's my title so <laughs> it kind of was like that oh one of those moments you just feel like you know fate just came down and gave it to you <laughs> I think titles are kind of like band names. They'll come to you until the last possible second and usually from the most random places. Right, I feel the same way. Because before I'd be like, I'd try to think of something like short and snappy and I'm just like, oh no, I'm going to go for the long title. Like the one that doesn't stare is, is a mouthful to say, I suppose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to know more about the goddess of lightning and thunder. It's kind of vague, which I like, but can we learn a little more about this person? Oh man. Okay. So how do I say that? Spoiling a lot. Um, yes. So this, this character, um, is someone who makes an appearance throughout the book and it's definitely focused on Domino's brother, Wakasa, um, the one that he ends up making a deal with. And, um, this creature is kind of like, um, I suppose split in different ways. Like it looks kind of like it's been lightning struck in a way. Um, and it is kind of based on um, a Native American folklore, but at the end, you kind of learn that 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 person itself has been kind of appropriated by the character. 
um, that they see themselves in this. And so they've taken it and used it for their own gains in an evil kind of way. Um, and they are kind of in control of um, magic, magically wise thunder and lightning. And it's always following them, always kind of haunting them um, that there's always lightning from coming behind them or their lightning struck in a way. So um, yeah, they're kind of, the, the, as the antagonists, they're kind of going through their own own personal problems and trying to figure out their own identity and um yeah so <laughs> i hope they're as much a character as the protagonist is yeah definitely it sounds like this person isn't quite the villain either it sounds like they're kind of in between those two things yeah yeah they're they're i think that they're a villain because they are so against what the what domino and wakasa are about like what their goals are and that they are also this you know this this antagonist is using them for its own gains to get what what it wants as well, um, which isn't always you know a positive for the world or the people people in it. Um, but yes, I, I do I do really like to have villains that do have a I guess not sympathetic side. I want I like villains that are vil- villainous. You know, you're not not always going oh it's because of this backstory that that's the way they are. But I do think that people um, deserve a backstory if you're going to be doing terrible things. <laughs> I think this kind of dovetails back to what we talked before about forcing writers to kind of try new things, that you're not going back to the more stereotypical villains, like the sinister person or the person with like the, the, the haunted backstory. I want to get your thoughts on that, though. Yeah, um, I, I guess it's kind of a, it's a, it's a fine line to walk because I think sometimes in recent media, I think there's been a lot of, oh, let's make our villains like the good guys, I guess, you know, like the Joker or even like Cruella DeVille, like Disney stuff. Like, how are we going to make this villain someone that we want to learn more about? And I think there has to be distinction where you say, okay, this person does have maybe a tragic backstory, maybe something terrible has happened to them, but their choices have led them to where they are today. And they have to under like take responsibility for them. They're not somebody that I should think sympathetic thoughts toward towards because of who they are. And I think that makes a really good villain because you want like Walter White, right? From Breaking Bad. Like he is an ultimate villain. He is a bad man. And you watch his descent, but you are there for it the whole time. And I think if you can, you know, you can understand that he is a villain, but at the same time, like recognize where he came from and why the choices he made made him who he is. I think that that that's great storytelling. That's some that's something I want to see more of. I don't want to see you know, why is Maleficent a bad character? Oh, because of this. To me, that that doesn't give as much to say of Walter White. You know, he wants power. He never had power. He has power. Now he knows he's going to keep it no matter what. Um, so, yeah, I think that um, as long as people can understand where their villains are coming from and not like put them on pedestals, I think that's a, a, a good indicator and that we can also, you know, make good, better different types of built villains and, you know, again, stretch that mold of, of writing and creativity. Yeah, I think there's something to be said for the cut-and-dry villain. Okay, maybe they did have, like, like you look at, say, uh, Darth Vader, of course. He, you know, he definitely had a tragic backstory, but he's not a good person. He's very mm-hmm. much a bad person. He's, he's killed a lot of people. He is in no way mm-hmm. a good person. He redeems himself, but that doesn't make him a good person. Exactly. And I think that's what makes him such a good villain, is, like, at the end of, like, the originals, you're like, oh, my God, he's this. But then, you know... Uh, and and we're kind of making this where you already got his backstory of how he became who he was. And now, like, for example, if you watch Obi-Wan, like, we have to see him be bad and evil. And you have to go, oh, no, like, everything that might have come in those prequels have to be washed away because he has killed people. He doesn't care. He you have to you have to make Darth Vader scary again. And I think that's that's a that's really hard to do, because I think a lot of people have so much sympathy for Darth Vader and have really like 
thought of him as like, oh, this guy that went through so much. Um, but now that we're kind of getting into the timeline, Star Wars wise of him, you know, Obi-Wan, for example, like how do you make him like strike fear into your viewers again? And I, I like, I like that we're going to be able to be, to see that again, to make him mm-hmm. a terrifying villain. Yeah. He did kill a lot of people. A lot of kids too, actually. Let, 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 a lot of people. Let, let's be right. He killed a lot of kids. Okay, he killed a yeah. lot of kids, and yeah, yeah, we can't just gloss over that fact. Nope, nope, <laughs> exactly. Cool. That's what you know, yeah. it's like okay, cool. He saved Luke and killed the Emperor, but he killed a lot of kids. There, there's a there's a scale here. It's not just a exactly. Um, and to me, that was his redemptive arc. Like that was the moment where he was like, okay. He did like everything he's done in the past is not redeemed, but he is on a path to doing something good. And that really like ended up being his downfall, of course. Spoiler alert if you haven't seen Star Wars, good lord. <laughs> we're spoiling all sorts of folks here, but we're you know just what? everything. We're spoiling everything, everything. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know what? Let's go back to the book then. I think we could talk Star Wars all night long here, but let's go back to the book. When you first contacted me, the cover of this book just gripped me. I was like, yep. We're talking. I don't even need to know what it's about. The cover just nailed it for me. Who did the cover art? Because they did an absolutely exceptional job. Yeah, his name is Philippe Knoll, K-N-O-L-L. Um, and he is a fantastic artist. I actually, um, Crystal Lake Publishing ended up putting us in contact and said, hey, this is the guy I think we're going to use. They had asked me originally, like, well, what, what's your imagining for the cover? What do you think it would be? And I said something like, oh, I think, you know, a fantasy version of Stranger Things like with that upside down. And then you have your main characters on the front. And um, I said, I wanted a painted cover. because That's my style, I love painted covers. And so they gave me his Instagram profile and I was like, oh, his work is absolutely fantastic. And he was a dream to work with. He was super, just so kind. He took all of my, I sent him a long rambling email. As you can tell, I ramble all the time now. <laughs> and he just took it and, and rolled with it and created that beautiful, beautiful cover. So I, um, I think it's, it's absolutely gorgeous, and I am I am just tickled pink that that it's my cover, <laughs> that it's my book that gets that cover. <laughs> it's such a cool cover, and I think covers can either make or break a book. There's some books I have no joke bought for the cover. That's all yeah. it took, really. Okay. Um, this is now your fourth book. You've released uh, uh, three others along with a number of stories that are part of different anthologies. How are you on release day? How am I like, like mentally and physically Mm -hmm. or, oh God, I am a complete mess. I find book releases to be really, really stressful. And that's so weird because when I first started, I I thought that this would be like my grand day. I'd be like strutting around being like, my book's coming out today. Can't wait. And no, now it's just like my stomach's in knots. Like you're just waiting for those reviews to roll in. And of course you're going to get negative reviews. That's just the name of the game. And it's like, oh, oh no, what do I do? What do I do? So I really try to like, um, you know, you have to celebrate a little bit. So try to do something, you know, try to promote as much as you can on social media. And then I think it's the next day where you're just waiting for the reviews to start rolling in that it's just like just a bundle of nerves. (laughs) So it's like you're put, you're literally kind of putting a piece of your soul out there for people to judge. And I think that's just the part of being an artist, like whether it's a, you know, painting or if it's a book or, you know, game, like you are putting something that you created and nursed within your brain out into the world and having people judge it is, is really difficult. <laughs> Especially when you think of the years of work, like you mentioned, this has been five plus years of your life went into this yeah. book. And I think to have someone say, well, this book is trash. That, that's got to be a blow. I mean, hopefully it, it doesn't happen. Like, I, only, I, I really only foresee good reviews. This is a really, really oh, cool you. book. 
But yeah, I I, I imagine there's some uh, trepidation when you when you say, "Oh, new uh, a new uh, review left on Amazon by so and so." You think, "Oh boy, what's it gonna be?" <laughs> exactly. And I had an editor once who told me she was like, "Don't read reviews." She's like, "Do not do it." And I totally disregarded her. And I read my reviews, and she's right. Like, do not read your reviews because <laughs> you're gonna get people who get it and understand what you're going for. And then there's gonna be other people who are just like, "What are you doing?" And that's not against you know them as readers. I mean, I think everybody has their their own tastes and their own their own ideas about how you write and their own images they're creating and. We obviously all imagine stories differently. Like some are like movies in your brain. And other times it's like amorphous blobs moving around. So um, I get it. But at the same time, it is really, really difficult too. <laughs> There's a comedian named Randy Feltface. And I think he said it best. One man's To Kill a Mockingbird is another man's Twilight Saga. <laughs> yep. That, that's accurate right there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, taste is so subjective. I mean, like... You know, you want to know what, what, what people think, but at the same time, you know, it, it can be impossible to please everyone. Simple as that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, in, in, in like creative writing, like if you get feedback that's consistent, you're like, okay, maybe there is something wrong, but you have to ignore the, the one-offs that are like, what is this character doing? I don't understand them. Or I love this person. What? I want them to be the shining light of all the, the rest of your books. Like you kind of have to you know, media, like weigh the scales, I suppose, and find out where, where the true problems lie. Um, and also, you know, you need to like recognize that it's your art as well. I think a lot of times books get a bad rap because it's like, oh, you're writing for somebody. It's like, no, you're writing for you. It's your book. It's your art. You wouldn't say that to a, a painting. So <clears throat> I try to think that in my mind. I'm like, this is a piece of art that I've created and I'm letting other people see it and take it. And it's no longer mine. <laughs> Will you be doing any book signings, uh, readings, tours? I'm kind of doing some online stuff. Um, I've had a couple of interviews already. Um, mostly I, I just had a baby. So I have been kind of secluded inside of my house due to COVID and everything. Um, but I am kind of slowly emerging from my cocoon and I'm hoping to do some local, um, set up some local sign, signings and stuff. But at the moment, I'm doing a lot of blog posts. Um, there are going to be a lot of blog, blog blasting on the day of, which, of release, which is July 29th. And, um, of course, talking to lovely people, lovely people like you. You know what? Take your baby with you to the signings and put them on the merch table. Everyone will buy books. <laughs> That's a good point. That's a good point. Be like, look at my cute baby. Buy my book. Buy my book. <laughs> you know what? Good make, marketing there. Make the baby a custom onesie with the book cover. <laughs> Dang it. I didn't even think about that. That's perfect. <laughs> Never (laughs) underestimate cuteness. You can always sell. He's he's pretty cute. (laughs) At least I think so, right? There you go. Now, I read that you also work as an editor. Did this help you when the time came to kind of parse down your book and get the final version? Um, this, I was actually in, um, this book was actually in the process of getting published and going to the editing process, um, before I was hired on with Aconite Books. So, uh, no, <laughs> but I have worked as an editor, freelance editor in the past. And that always gives you a lot of chops to like, get some distance from your work, see the problems that are involved in it. Um, again, like looking at pacing and, um, character like POV, like, like you had mentioned having Domino be that vulnerable character. Like that was a choice to make sure that, that, that deep seated, um, perspective was, was available in that first few chapters. Um, so I do, um, I definitely think that, you know, from the couple of drafts that were again, blazing at hundred miles an hour to kind of evolving my editor chops did help 
rein in a lot of things. And it was much more easier to kill some darlings um, because I knew that they weren't working. Um, and because I had evolved that career, so they could tell me that. So, um, so yeah, but working with academic books is fantastic. I love it there. And um, I'm obviously always going to be honing my craft. With this book, did you get to try anything new, whether it was, whether it was a character or a storytelling type? I think really embracing the horror genre was something that was new to me. Um, I had kind of always been like in the dark fantasy, maybe science fiction realm. And when I started writing this, like I knew pretty much off the bat, just as the scenes kind of came to me and I imagined that this was going to be a horror book. Um, and that was a little bit hard to swallow because I was like, Ooh, is this too dark? Like, this is dark. Should I be writing this? This is dark. And just kind of going, all right, this is where the story is taking me. You just have to like, like embrace it. That's how the scene is going to be. That's how the scene should be. And that's going to how, how the character is going to evolve. So I think I did like go delve into some pretty dark places with this book, like some in character arcs and character development, and even just some side characters that things that the characters end up going with. Like if you're going to have a cursed magic, like it has to me, I'm like, it's something it's gotta be bad. So, um, so that was something that was, that was new for me that I hadn't in, like done before. And I was like, all right, here we go. You know, <laughs> grab your backpack and your steaks and go into the underworld and hope you don't get eaten. <laughs> Yay. Field trips. I love those. <laughs> Is this book a one-off? Do you foresee it being part of a series? I think it's going to be a standalone. Um, I think that it, I kind of just went through all the characters I wanted to. I felt like it summed it up pretty well, but I did leave a little bit of wiggle room in case, you know, maybe a couple months down the line, there's going to be a, an, oh, I wish she would do this. Um, so I did leave myself like a backdoor exit in case I wanted to write something more in this world. Um, but at the moment, I wanted it to be it's a big book. It's like 400 pages. So I wanted it to be a standalone. I wanted it to be something that um, a reader could pick up and be satisfied in that. Um, and I think that's kind of a personal choice too. Um, I got a little tired of sequels and trilogies. And sometimes I just wanted to pick up something that is contained that it, that I could enjoy and that would be the end of it. And then I could let it linger in the back of my mind. So mm -hmm. at the moment, yes, it's just a standalone. Well, I think with everything you cut out, you could probably take all that and make it into another book. Oh my God, I totally could too. <laughs> I probably have like five chapters already easily written for this bad boy. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, Gwendolyn, sorry to say it's time to bring this whole thing to a close. I have really enjoyed uh, talking with you and uh, certainly the book has been a blast to read, folks. July 29th, you know where to be. You go to GwendolynNixNIX.com for more information. Pre-order your copies. Leave reviews. Leave good reviews. And <laughs> that would be very cool. you know what? If you have to leave a review that isn't, you know, five stars, offer some ideas. People like ideas. You never know. Feedback is good. Once again, Gwendolyn, thank you for talking to me and looking forward to release day. Thank you so much for having me. This is a blast. Hey, this is singer, songwriter, and mental health advocate Stephanie Mathias. Be sure to check out my single Hero Side, available on all platforms now, and listen to Citywide Blackout, your home for the best indie artists. And that brings this episode to a close. Don't forget, July 29th, I have asked to be where no storms come, available through Crystal Lake Publishing. You can follow the show on Facebook under Citywide Blackout and Twitter and Instagram under Citywide Max. Get at me at citywidemax at yahoo.com and check the show out wherever you find podcasts, as well as every Saturday at 10 p.m. on Boston Free Radio. That's all for now, and I'll see you next time.